Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 6. My guest today is Andrew B. Liu. He's the author of Tea War, a history of capitalism in China and India. And today we're going to talk about tea. We talk about the history of tea. We talk about tea as kind of a marker of colonialism and capitalism. So it's a really fascinating episode. Tea is the world's most consumed beverage aside from water. So it's really, I think it's an important episode. Also, if you want to support the podcast and you want to support the Instagram page, then just visit the website at www.brownhistorypodcast.com and do what you could do. It means a lot and it goes a long way. Anyways, let's get this started. Here we go. Let's record. Yeah. The only hard part of your book for Uh, me was is because I didn't come from a finance background. I didn't understand Adam Smith's concepts. I didn't understand. uh, But when I did like try to figure it out, yeah. It was really cool to see how the thinking was back then. Yeah. No, you know, the cool thing or the funny thing is I've never taken an econ class or a finance class in my life. Okay. I was like, uh, I hated that stuff when I was an undergrad. And I think it's probably because my parents are in business. And then uh, later in like, I could, when I went to like grad school, I was like, no, I think the world works because of money and because of right. capitalism. So I actually got to study this on my own. But um well, now I teach these kids, these undergrads who are all like finance majors, like like business is the number one major in the United States. And uh, I bring up these things like, you know what Adam Smith said or Karl Marx said, and they have no idea, right? Because they, they just read textbooks. And those textbooks are just like, here's a math formula. Yes. So uh, I don't, what's, what's your background? What did you study when you were in I college? Studied, I studied engineering, electrical. Okay. And yeah. then I did this thing as a side project, yeah. you know, just to understand how the world works. Yeah, yeah. And then it went from, I don't know, somehow it always does root to money, to, to making profits. Sure. Uh, Walt of Nation, uh, Adam Smith, his, philo- his philosophy was what? That he didn't feel like, he felt like people had free right to do business and government shouldn't intervene. So that's the, that's the stereotype of what he says. And he does say that at some point, but uh you can get into these a lot of people would say like you know if you actually read adam smith he was okay with some sort of government intervention or whatever but he, he's been turned into basically this like uh hero of the right wing who's like all about free markets and mm-hmm. untrammeled capitalism and all that stuff and uh you could read him in that way but i just think he's interesting because he historically is kind of like the one of the first people to kind of put into words like what is this thing called capitalism in the 1700s when if we look back you know economic historians have looked back and been like most of the world was not like this at all most of the world was still like living in villages and like not interacting with the wider world and for the most part like uh if like making their own food and making their own clothing and a lot of that stuff so adam smith has this vision of the world where all of us constantly make things to sell them in order to make money in order to buy things and that's the like the world obviously you and i live in and and have you know we're born into um but like that's not actually what life was like when adam smith was writing but he had this like vision of like this has happened like he was able to articulate these are the basic principles of a society in which the marketplace has kind of um you know taken over everything Right. And like and, and, and by I'd say like the late 19th, early 20th century, that's a pretty good description of like Western Europe, United States, by now pretty much most of the world, Asia. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but um, you know, no you one had really articulated like supply and demand and like the way the prices work dictates, you know, like where do, where do people get like 
what kind of jobs should you get? Um, where should money go? Where should supplies go? And all that stuff. Like that was all, um, you know, that was all pretty new when Adam Smith was writing. So that's, that's, an, that's why I think he's interesting. And he also kind of, I mean, what I'm really interested in, I'm interested in like what Marx said about capitalism in the 1800s, right? But what's interesting is that Marx reads Adam Smith and he, and he, and he finds in Adam Smith like a secret to understanding this stuff. And then Marx does his own thing where he's like, Adam Smith was mostly right, but there's also this thing that he ignored, which is about, you know, labor and exploitation and the dark yeah. side of capitalism. Yeah. Um, which Smith wasn't, he didn't ignore that either. He always, he, he, you know, Smith would talk about it, you know, if, when you give someone a factory job, it makes their brain dumb and like their, their life sucks because they're just doing the same thing for 10 hours a day. Yeah. So he would, he didn't, Smith wasn't blind to that stuff. It's just like when right wingers cite Adam Smith, they ignore all that stuff. So. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to get back to that because I want to, I guess, start. Yeah. Where... Let's just... No, no, because this is important. I think this is going to be important when the, when the war starts coming in and the opium <laughs> war and the reason behind that, I guess. Yeah. So T. Yeah. Okay. Where T was initially from uh, China. Yeah. And people loved it. People in Europe loved it. It yeah. was like high-end stuff. There was hype. It was a social class thing. Yeah. And the way I see it, from what I understand, is you had China had tea. Europeans wanted to buy it. Europeans mm -hmm. would go to India, take the tax money from there because they colonized it, mm -hmm. use that money to grow opium and for trade, take mm -hmm. that accumulation of wealth, of of capital mm -hmm. and then use that money to buy to tea. make opium and then to sell right. opium to china and then use that money to buy tea yeah so yeah that's 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 the that's that yeah this is a complicated thing called the trade triangle and it changes over time right so tea first as far as we know the europeans were first aware of tea in the 1500s 1600s maybe and the, they called it all these different names um, the, I don't know if people have seen this like on social media where it's like half the world calls tea, tea yeah. and half the world calls it something like cha or chai, yeah, right? I call right. it chai. Exactly. Right. And that comes from the fact that it, the same Chinese character, um, uh, in Mandarin would be pronounced, we call it cha in Mandarin. Um, and that's what the same in like Japanese and Korean. And, uh, you can kind of map, like, where did you get tea from? If it's from like the overland Northern China, you probably call it something like cha or chai. Uh, and then the other pronunciation is T-E-A, or it's a, based on the southern southern Chinese dialect, which I can't say, but something like they, right, becomes tea. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the most part, we think Europeans first learned about tea, called it cha in the 1500s, 1600s. The Dutch, I think, are the first to really buy it, the Portuguese, the British. We're not really sure, like, why it becomes so popular. They already had coffee, and coffee, I like, I like coffee better. Than I tea. love coffee better, too. <laughs> the caffeine's a lot better, right? Yeah. Uh, but we think of coffee as this new thing because of Starbucks, but actually coffee predates tea in Europe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just that the British, uh, as you were kind of referring to, the British eventually create this monopoly over trade with India and trade with China. And that, uh, I think, is a large part why tea becomes like the drink of England. Mm -hmm. But the rest of Western Europe, and I think Americans for the most part, and I don't know if Canadians, like coffee more, have always they liked do. coffee more. Yeah, yeah. Tim Hortons. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so they, the British, or the British, for whatever reason, get crazy for tea. They, uh, and they were willing, they're willing to pay 
a lot of money for it, right? Yeah, so at first, the main thing, and the famous story goes that the British, you know, they tell, you know, the, the emperor of China, they have this famous, you know, trip in 1793 where they say, like, here's these, like, clocks and these things we can make in England, and we're, like, so special. So, you know, you can have any of this if you trade tea for us, trade, tea, trade, tea, trade for tea with us. And the Chinese emperor famously says, like, we don't need your shit, right? Like, we, we're good. Right. We're, we're the most powerful empire in the world. Um, now, that's a little bit of a, that, that did happen, and that, for historians, is kind of this metaphor for uh, the fact that China didn't need anything from the rest of the world. Which, is, were, which signifies that they were doing pretty good for themselves. Yeah, they were good, right? Right. And uh, so, so for, at the first, most of the 1700s, Britain was just giving them all their silver. Right. The main thing was China uh, used silver as their main currency. Silver is valuable, you know, around the world, but especially in China. So, but eventually the Britain is like, we can't just like give up all of our silver. Like that's, that's crazy. We got to figure out some sort of commodity, some sort of renewable resource, right. That, that we can uh, get them. And like you said, like 1760s or so, they begin to occupy first Bengal, Calcutta, Eastern India, and then it's in Eastern India that they begin to create a monopoly over opium. Um, and from there, they have these, East in, the East Indian Company itself creates these opium factories, um, which are, they're pretty, they're pretty sophisticated as far as I can tell. They're like, they have like a full working staff and specialized workers kind of, kind of coerced to do this labor all day long to take, you know, opium from the poppy flower and basically they make it into these little balls and they put these balls into chests. And so the units of the units in economic um, histories are like how many chests of opium like were being moved to China. Chest of opium as well. Yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, I could show, there's some interesting websites that have all these interesting like drawings and pictures of them. Uh, and so what happens is uh, China, Chinese, first is like the elites, like the, the officials, the merchants, they get addicted to opium. And then it kind of trickles down to like a large part of the population gets addicted to opium. And then uh, eventually what... How come India doesn't get addicted to opium? That's a good question. I think as far as I can, as far as I can remember, I think the British made sure that they're... Well, so first they were, right? There, there were a lot of reports, for instance, of like wild people. Like the, I talk a little bit about in my book about, you know, this place called the Somme where tea gets grown. Mm-hmm. And a big complaint for a lot of the 19th century was these Assamese people are too lazy. All they want to do is smoke opium all day. Okay. So that is like a main complaint. But I don't know. I think they, I think there's probably restrictions within like the sort of British occupied areas. Like don't opium don't is... get high off your own supply. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and honestly, the analogies with like, you know, like all these like drug crime shows in the 21st century, I think they're totally valid. Like... I, I think my kids are too young now, but you know, you've probably seen like Breaking Bad or yeah, um, the wire, right? Yeah. And I always ask, so my kids don't get this, the, uh, the references anymore, but you know, like Stringer Bell doesn't sell his own drugs. He, he has all those runners, right? Or, uh, you know, Walter White doesn't, he doesn't sell his own drugs. He gets badger mm. to sell his drugs. Right. Yes. So the East India company, <laughs> exactly. Right. So if anyone gets caught, it's badger. Or it's the runners for, for Avon and Stringer. Right. So, <laughs> So similarly, East India Company, they make all this opium, but they don't sell the opium to China. They have all these small little companies that do it for them. And a lot of them are basically Scottish <laughs> and, and like, uh, or these like small little English like mom and pop shops or, and some of our American are also. 
Um, and a lot of those companies wind up being some of the biggest, most famous companies in the history of the Asia trade. And they were just like, started off as just the supplier, the go-between wow. between the British East India Company and China. So like, if you ever go to Hong Kong um, or just like Google this, you'll, you'll see the name Jardine Matheson everywhere in Hong Kong. Jardine Matheson. So Jardine, J-R, just Scottish. Oh, J-A-R, Jardine. Yeah. Jardine. Jardine, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Uh, J-R-D-I-N-E Matheson. Matheson sounds Scottish. Um, uh, it's like one of the biggest companies in Hong Kong. Its name it is all over Hong Kong. started from selling opium. Yeah, they're opium merchants. And then I always tell my students, like, I kind of go through these famous names of people in U.S. history they, that they probably have heard of, like John Jacob Astor, um, whose name is all over New York City, Astor Place, Astoria, Waldorf Astoria. He was like the richest guy in the United States at some point. He was an opium dealer. Um, Another person involved in the trade is a guy named Warren Delano, meaning he's from the Delano family of Massachusetts, which Whoa. is also the family that Franklin Roosevelt's, I guess, mom or father married into. So FDR, right? The D from FDR is the Delano family, and they were That's they were crazy. they were involved in tea, right? But being part of the tea trade means also being involved in the opium trade. And then the other one, I live in Philadelphia. The name that's all over Philadelphia is this guy Stephen Gerard, uh, and he was definitely um, involved in tea and opium, right? So, and then in India, there's a, there's a lot of interesting speculative research on how these Parsi merchants in Western India got super, super rich off of opium, um, basically because they were kind of the suppliers, right? Um, Western India winds up being more important than Eastern India for opium. And those Parsi merchants, um, you could say are like responsible for like starting the city of Bombay, making the city of Bombay, the city of Bombay. Oh, no way. So that's, yeah. yeah. So that's the argument that, um, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to not give credit, but there's, there's someone who's Faruqi. Faruqi is the last name, but he's written several essays coming up with this argument that I think sounds pretty good to me, uh, that. On, on the on the link between opium and Bombay, and I don't know. It sounds because because Amar Faruqi, um, the book is called Opium City, uh, because that's I think it corresponds to like the birth of the history of Hong Kong, and definitely Shanghai. Like HSBC Bank. I don't know if you all have that in Toronto. Yes, we do. Right. Do you know what it stands for? It's Hong Kong, something bank. Shanghai Banking Company. Right. Oh. But it's a British bank. So why is a British bank? called the Hong Kong, Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Company. It's because there were British merchants in Hong Kong and Shanghai who had all this capital and they needed a bank to service that, you know, to keep their money and issue credit and all that stuff. So they created that. Yeah, so HSBC's initial capital is basically the capital of the opium merchants. That's and, crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, Whoa. Um, I don't know. So this is this is all like fun. Um, the opium trade is fun and it's, I mean, it's, it's sad. and It's, it's uh, sad, yeah. It's got a lot of, I don't know, in Toronto, do you all have the, um, in America, there's always headlines today about uh, the opioid, ep opioid epidemic. Well, I mean, we don't have that issue here as much as you guys, but we hear about it from, from yeah. you guys that you have this opioid. Why do you think that is? Why do you, why do you think? Because like Toronto my, is so close, so my, close to the US. Yeah. Um, from what I know is your healthcare and your healthcare yeah. just prescribes uh, any medication. <laughs> and then from there, it's like a gateway drug into opium where we have yeah. free healthcare. Yeah. Yeah, that might be actually a good explanation. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> Isn't it funny that like if you just drive six hours down south, no, north, Yeah. it's free healthcare. Yeah. If, no, I mean. It's a six-hour drive. That's it. 
uh, yeah, I mean, all my friends and I are just like heartbroken right now about, about, yeah, we're not going to get healthcare anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, you know, free healthcare, um, free healthcare, yeah, universal. But, uh, yeah, like Philadelphia famously, a neighborhood just a few miles away from me is known as like the, one of the, the big centers of the opioid, opioid epidemic. Wow. And, uh, there's this, I mean, I think, I think it's kind of this crazy irony that, People don't talk about this more, but this is basically a reversal of the opium trade from the 18th century from, because a lot of the opioids that come into this, this country, they're synthetic. It's not real opium. It's made from, I don't know, something, some other chemicals, but it's from China, right? Okay. It's like this Chinese suppliers, just like everything comes from China today, right? So we have this reversal of um, the Europeans, Euro-Americans bringing opium into China. Now it's China sending the opioids back to Mostly the United States, but some some in Western Europe too, and uh, I don't know. I don't know why people Karma? don't talk about this more. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to make it a moral thing, but it is like there's a there's a real striking parallel in, in, for a historian um, that you know. I talked to some journalists about this um, in, in Philly who are who are covering it, and they don't know the history, so they don't talk about it. But as a historian reading these headlines, I'm like, this is crazy. This is the opium. Yeah. This is the opium trade in reverse um, 300 years later. So, yeah, so to go back to the original story, it is, so there's a, this massive craze for tea in England that initially drives things, but eventually it's um, the profits on opium that is like the main driver. So, I mean, it's still a, the cycle, right, of like um, stuff from England to India, stuff from India to China, stuff from China back to England, right? But, you know, for this thing to kind of, in terms of like what is the main source of like what is the most profitable part of this whole trade triangle eventually it's opium and so much so that because there's so much demand for opium in china and mm -hmm. and the supply of tea i think in the demand for tea in in the rest of the world is like it's pretty high but it's not that it doesn't keep going up and up and up so much so that china actually starts um spending some of their silver to buy the opium so oh. like the, the balance of trade kind of gets reversed, right? Instead of England sending all of their all of their reserves, all their silver to China, China now has run out of stuff to buy opium, so they just start spending their silver and sending it back out. Um, and so that's ultimately why I think that's a big reason why the Chinese government finally tries to stop the import of opium, and that leads to the opium war in the 1830s, 1840s. It's not really that the government was against, I mean, there were some people who were like, this is immoral, yeah. but honestly, the emperor was, was hooked on opium. The most of the high officials were hooked on really? opium. So it wasn't like, you know, they, it wasn't like they were all puritanical about drugs. Okay. Right. So they and, say no to, they say no more trading opium anymore. Right. And so there's this whole spectacle where they, um, the, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a famous story. There's this guy uh, in Chinese, his name is uh, Lin Zexu, but in English, he's kind of just known, known as Commissioner Lin. Yeah. And I bring him up just because he becomes this hero um, for a lot of overseas Chinese communities in New York City, Chinatown, and Philadelphia, Chinatown, maybe in Toronto, Chinatown. There's statues of this guy um, because he's of the Commissioner Lin because he's. I I, I bet there might be you know something in Toronto, Chinatown, and it's, check it out. Yeah. Uh, because he's supposedly the Chinese guy who stood up to the Europeans, right? Anytime a Chinese dude um, stands up to, to white people, they become yeah. national heroes, even though it's like, it's anachronistic. He wasn't, he wasn't seeing himself as some anti-colonial resistance fighter, but he's the guy who takes the opium, disposes the opium, but then 
it was a trick. The British handed over the opium so that they could have a pretense or pretext to declare a war on China by saying like, you violated the natural principles of, of free trade and free intercourse between nations, so we can declare war on you. Right? That was a big deal. That that was enough reasoning to to. It was it was scandalous, but I mean the opium war. Uh, I mean I don't know what like non-China historians' impression is. And Chinese history is this big event, um, yeah. like like it like it's and in, in Chinese in China, like in the 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 education system in China will say like, you know, modern Chinese history begins with the opium war because that's the big clash with the rest of the world. But even honestly, at the time, it was just this little like flare up and people in China didn't really care. People in Britain didn't really care. Um, The war was actually not even, I don't even think the war was um, a big deal in London. Like the British parliament didn't really care. It was actually the, it was the British colonial officers in India who were like, all right, we're going to war. The, like, there was the East India Company. So it was like a um, corporation going yeah. against the country. Yeah, and enlisting the royal, and, right, enlisting the royal navy to help them out with this. But it was honestly like, uh, I don't know. I was kind of thinking like a long time ago, like the, like this the analogies with like the Iraq War, the you know stuff in the Middle East about like war on ter- like war on freedom and all that stuff. Like, there's some analogies there. It's mm-hmm. it's like this profit profiteering combination of like profiteering and military expansion but it's honestly like not a thing that has a lot of domestic support like people in england didn't care about okay i mean if anything you know they they tried the british government or the british the people who are into this war they didn't they tried really hard not to say we're going to fight this war so we can sell drugs right Right. they're just saying this is about these abstract principles of freedom and and liberalism and just like you know america's wars are always about you know freedom and democracy not about so same 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 language (laughs) i kind of think so i mean you know it's it's a bit it's a bit simplistic and someone someone listener is going to be like it's not exactly the same but i think you know big picture there's you know they're kind of there's a family resemblance i would say right family resemblance is a good way of saying it (laughs) yeah so they win the war essentially uh british yeah the war is uh, super lopsided because they have been fighting wars with European powers for a long time. They have giant iron ships and guns. The Chinese, uh, at the time, the empire known as the Qing Empire, they're they're pretty militaristic, but they fight like land battles. So a lot of it is like horse and arrows, and right. they're really good at that stuff. They have home game advantage. Yeah, but they're not good at. Um, they're not really good at like maritime battle, okay. and. Um, I think by all accounts, like they basically have like these wooden ships and I don't even know how they're supposed to fight. Cause they didn't really have guns either. So I don't know what their plan was when they, when they fought on these ships. Um, but the, but the British have these guns and these iron ships and it's like game over pretty quickly. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, it, it lasts a while, but eventually, uh, and then the consequence of the opium war, the most famous consequence for most historians is, um, it produces uh, it kind of open, quote unquote, opens up China to the rest of the world in the sense that the British have the right to trade, and then America says like us too, and then France does, and then Europe, and then as we go through the 19th century, whenever you know the British or the French, and then later Japan win a war with China, the, all these other countries that are colonial powers are like us too. We also get the right. So that by the 20th century. China is basically, uh, the, the metaphor was, it was a carved up melon, right? That a lot of these cities on the coast that you've probably heard of, like Beijing or Tianjin and um, obviously Hong Kong, right? They're just like 
there's these a lot of the parts of these cities are just open to the, to the rest of the world to to set up shop to to buy and sell things even to even open their own factories so this is what people in chinese history call semi-colonialism it's not exactly like it's not india it's not colonialism, colonialism. it's like the beginning of colonialism because that's how it kind of starts off right where you set up like these spots yeah. and then you kind of get in and deeper and deeper in until you're, yeah. you're running the show yeah so you could say it's similar to like you know india before 1857 right? right before before they over really kind of take down the Mughals. yeah it's just like this outpost but they never get to that point where you know no. this is a small like interesting historical question why the british or why no power tried to do that to china and i just think it's it's like china's too big for that and and and, and the people just kind of decided at some point the british and the americans and the french they decided at some point it was actually just better to have you know china run china the chinese mm-hmm. empire run china but also just have give them the privilege quote-unquote open door privileges to just go in and go out at their own you know on their own leisure because like you know we're seeing right now with like united states and they're trying to set up shop around the world they would rather have a local government run things true and then and then they just like you know they just have an open door to go in and out right they don't it's actually really expensive it was really expensive for the british to run india right and they had a right and they had to figure out like what the hell are we doing in, in India, uh, and 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 that was you know this constant source of like they kind of like ran India on the cheap. That's that's like this kind of dirty secret. It wasn't this on it, the I mean, cheap. So yeah, in the long run, obviously, it's very profitable to have an empire. But for historians of India, they would say like the British were trying to extract as much as possible out of India. I mean, this is the criticism, right? This is why you know why is India poor today? Because the British extracted profits out of it. Mm-hmm. But they didn't try to like develop it as like one of their own types, like not 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 like it was a city in like you know part of the British, part of Europe, right? right. They weren't like building up Delhi, building up, um, you know, Bombay and Calcutta with lots of investment and in the infrastructure. They were just trying to figure out ways to profit off of it, right. um, and they did profit off of it, right? But you could argue, I think the the India most most uh, Indian economists or the nationalists would say like. Yeah, but as a result, you just kind of squeezed all the wealth out of our out of our people and out right. of the land. Um, yeah, so so how did I get on this rant? Um, yeah, it's okay. No, I like these rants. So yeah, <laughs> so uh, they win the war, and now Europe can trade opium like back to they can go back to trading opium with uh, China. Yeah, so so the the most familiar story that you'll see in like a a, a history textbook will be they win the war. This opens up China. This leads to this long decline of the Chinese empire and blah, blah, blah. Um, what I was thinking of when I kind of came up with the idea for this book was, you know, you have this opium trade and this tea trade up until 1840 or so. And then it kind of disappears from most um, histories uh, just because, you know, understandably, right? Because the real reason this is important is because it leads to this war, which leads to like the rise and fall of these, you know, these these like, governments. That's basically what history is about. Like what happens to the rise and fall of these different powers. Um, but I was thinking, you know, uh, what actually does happen after the opium war? What does happen to the tea trade and the opium trade? Um, what this all from, so the topic of this book or the whole idea of this book came from just like a paper I wrote, um, when I was in graduate school where I was looking at like, where does Indian tea come from? Like why, like, you know, if you go to the grocery store today, like more, most people probably assume like there's two places in the world where they kind of associate with tea. One is China's one is India. Yeah, maybe maybe Japan, right? Um, and Indian tea is not this like, it was absolutely a byproduct of the British, um, 
colonial powers trying to set up shop in India and grow tea. Um, and, and so it's a project that's in the 1830s. The Opium War is in 1841. So there's something going on where this is like all happening at the same time. And so if you go back to the uh, debates at the time with like these British officials in India are talking about and China are talking about, they, uh, it's pretty remarkable that the Opium War comes from this impulse by the British to say something like, we like we love tea like we we can't we can't get enough of this stuff but we um we're we're at the risk we're at the mercy of the chinese government if they close their borders then we'd have no more tea right so how do we get around this well one solution is obviously just fight a war and open up the country that's what they did right another solution is why don't we just find a way to grow tea in one of our our own quote unquote our own uh, territories which is to say india and so at the same moment that they're revving up to fight the Opium War in the 1830s, they're also searching for ways to grow tea in India um, as, this, uh, as, a, as a colonial crop in the sense that it's, like, it's, it's, it's more or less like imported from overseas and, and, and kind of um, created by outsiders, right, by the British in, in, in India. And so in the, I, the, the, the premise of the book, the beginning of the book is these British officials are running around um, India, the, you know, the base at the time is Calcutta. Um, and they're, but they're thinking about like, well, what, what, what parts of India look like China? And they don't actually know what China looks like. At this point, they're just on the coast. Oh, really? Okay. But, but they look at like the Himalayas. They look at Nepal. They look at, um, I forget, like all these regions that are sort of roughly around like Eastern, North, Northeastern India. And then um, at the same time, you have this territory called Assam. Yeah. And Assam is interesting because right, it's obviously like it's a kind of a contested territory. It's the, it's the state in Northeast India today. I don't know if people know like the, I didn't know anything about it when, before I started doing this research, but Assam was never part of the Mughal Empire, right? Like there's this, I think there's a general impression like, well, the British, British India or India is based on, you know, the British quote unquote British India and British India is just like inheriting or taking over what the Mughal empire was. Right. But in fact, the Mughal empire, you know, based in Delhi was more or less like in charge of like this big thing we might call India today, but there are all these like local powers that also were actually independent of the Mughals, um, especially as you go to like Western India or Southern India. And the Assam is just like kind of just beyond the control of the Mughals, right? Like right. the Mughals had control over Bengal, um, but beyond that, Assam, and if you look at a map, it kind of like is, has this weird zigzaggy relationship with like Bangladesh and um, these other these other states, right? So no one controls Assam at the moment? So Assam is controlled by Assam. They're controlled by this thing called the, I don't know how to pronounce it correctly, but Ahom Aham. The S in, in Assamese is kind of an H sound is my, okay. my understanding. So in English, it's written as A-H-O-M, the Ahom Kingdom. Right. And it's uh, like a whole empire with a king and everything. Yeah, it's like its own thing. And all, obviously, all, the, all these words are like analogies from English. Like, we always talk about the kings of this or the, the chiefs of this or the, the princes. But like, that's just our best guess of trying to make sense of this, true, right? True. Right. Like, um, okay, so I guess... But like, yeah, they have, like, they have a king, they have a leader. But yeah. I don't know what, words what word they use, right? It's like you, right. Go to, you go to anywhere in the world, they're, they're going to have a leader. And then just because we use the English language, we're going to say, that's the king and that's the prince. And that's the true, king. true. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, that's fair. That's like, uh, that, that's, that's something to think about uh, when you start reading history about the rest of the world. Uh, yeah. So they have a leader, they have this like Royal family, quote unquote. And, 
there's this really interesting history of how they kind of they're doing fine on on their own terms but then by the late 1700s early 1800s the region kind of descends into this war um like a civil war there's like a religious movement that happens the ahomis Assamese people are the leaders themselves come kind of come from burma or what right. we call burma today or you could trace them actually back to um so there's this buddhist oh yeah that's a good question i think they might be i don't don't quote me on that okay. they might be um there's the the people are known as the thai ahom people t-a-i that's like i don't know what that if that's a maybe anthropological category but i think that thai is related to the word thai in thailand which i think is related to this minority group in southwest china called the dai right so there's the fact that the sound is traveling across this region lets us know that before modern national boundaries right these are all kind of a group of people that are at least have a similar um ancestors right uh which is to say that this this group that comes probably more from southeast asia than south asia they're the more or less the rulers of assam but they are the they're a minority within assam and so they kind of lose power this religious movement begins to happen and then what's whatever is going on in burma they have their own kingdom they begin to invade it's a mess it's a mess and then the british who are like very much about um you know protecting what they have in bengal they have an interest in making and pacifying right and making sure that whatever's happening in assam um doesn't you know, touch, doesn't mess with right. their goods so they they actually go into assam and they they they've finally add assam quote unquote to the british empire to the to south to india british india in 1826 um so again, this is all happening around the same, this is 1826. 1830s is when they begin to look for tea, um, places to grow tea. But even as early as 1826, the legend goes, there's these British merchants. I think they might have also, also been Scottish. They're called the Bruces, Robert Bruce and Charles Bruce. Right. They're just kind of like running around this place they're completely unfamiliar with called the Sum. And some local, again, like local prince, local leader, um, shows them they have tea. Right, but they apparently they prepared in a way that's completely different than the way it's prepared in China. But you know, the these British people are like, yeah, they have, they have tea also. Um, and then so eventually, their report that they actually have some tea gets back to you know the British who are based in Calcutta, and they're like, all right, that's a good place to try to experiment with. So there's already tea. there's already tea plants there when they when they get there, yeah, and then yeah. they use that as a, a to signify that you can grow tea here. So right. they get the seeds from China and they start planting it in Assam. So yeah, so the famous story is this is this is like the interesting story. They have this these episodes where they, I've, I'm pretty sure it's actually no, it's it's from Hong Kong or it's from you know the the trading post in China called Canton or Guangzhou, but also I think also just like straight up from Singapore. They, there's this funny story where they just basically look for any Chinese person, <laughs> and and the and the quote is like anyone with a pigtail. Because at the time in the Qing Empire, there was this mandated hairstyle. You, uh, if you ever watch a Chinese drama, you'll see Shanghai it. Shanghai like, Noon. I don't know. Like, it, does it have like the bald head with the, with the yeah, long hair yeah, in the back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's <laughs> is that Jackie Chan, right? Jackie Chan, yeah. yeah he yeah. cut his uh, hair out at the end and it's a big yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a big deal because that haircut was like the mandated haircut of the Qing Empire. Uh, so there's a famous quote or, or this quote that, happened, that circulates about how the British were like, they, they searched any man with a pigtail was good enough. And they brought him to, to India on the assumption that any Chinese person knew how to make tea, which is you know, not true. Um, but then they kind of learned their lesson and they eventually do get people who know how to make some kind of tea. 
And there's this experiment for like 10 or so years where they bring in Chinese tea seeds, Chinese tea plants, Chinese tea makers, and they, tr and they bring them to Assam and to like show us how to make tea. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like this funny little story, but honestly, in reality, that was actually probably like a, a total setback because the best way to grow tea in Assam is to use local Assamese tea leaves. Um, right. Have like slight, you know, they're similar, but slightly different. And the climate in Assam is similar, but slightly different than in China. Um, Does it um, taste different? I, th I mean, I assume I, the, 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 what's the, I don't know, the botany or the scientific categories today, they would say most of uh, the, the, whatever tea scientists would say that there's two varieties of tea. One is the Chinese variety. One is the Assamese variety. But it's and, the same plant. Yeah. So there's this plant called Camellia sinensis. That's yeah. the scientific name for tea. And then you can say variety sinensis, meaning China, Sino, and then variety Assamica, right? Assam. Which is Assam. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to unpack in terms of, I was just like, you know, listening to your other podcast episode about how there's all these um, mythologies around food, right? Yeah. And I think the same is true of tea in terms of there's all these like civilizational and class and racial connotations. Mythology and kind of yeah. legendary like, stuff. Like Darjeeling tea, in my mind, I think is kind of considered, it's really, it gets really expensive, Darjeeling tea compared to Assam tea. And it's grown on the hills, whereas Assam is very much flat land. And the mythology in China has always been tea that's grown on hills is better. Because why is there's a good reason for that, I forget. It's something about like if it's in a high if it's high up and it's in a cooler climate, um, the tea I think when it's in a flatter territory, they develop these like uh, the the plants develop like chemicals to like ward off the bugs, okay. But when if it's a higher up climate, like Less that, bugs. that response doesn't happen, and the tea I guess made is purer, tastes sweeter, or something like that. That's I don't know. That's like the basic claim that tea on the hills is always better. So Darjeeling tea is I think for that reason considered more expensive and better because it's grown on hills, and also growing on hills is more difficult. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, and interestingly enough, a lot of Darjeeling tea is sold as green tea. And green tea is kind of the standard, quote unquote, Chinese way of drinking tea. Yeah. And the black tea that is much more common in, you know, in, in, for like British people, but also in India, right? That's kind of considered more for the masses. Culturally. Um, culturally for the masses. And, it, and it's also because black tea goes well with milk and sugar. Right, right, uh, right. And we can get into like, like what, what, is, what is the point of drinking tea? Like for connoisseurs who are rich it could be like the actual flavor of the leaf right but for a lot of people tea is really about this just basic vehicle for shoving sugar and milk into your body right and and getting cal getting calories that way right right uh, and that was definitely true for the british working class that's why tea becomes popular in england so they can just um have a hot drink to go with their like really shitty food that they had because they were like working all day in the factory uh, so it was really just about imbibing caffeine and sugar and, and calories from milk. And I kind of think something as similar has happened. My understanding of like chai masala, um, um, at, when it becomes a really popular drink at like, you know, in, in tea stalls all across South Asia in the 1970s is that it has a similar function, right? It's just like, um, uh, like I mean, you're, you're from Pakistan, right? Right. So I, I don't know what it's like over there, but like when I'm in India and in like Delhi or in um, Calcutta, there's all these like you know chai wala like the tea tea vendors everywhere. Yes, and it's it's but they're basically just cooking milk and spices, and like I feel like there's barely any tea in there, right? Um, it's it's not for health reasons. That's for yeah, yeah. It's for just for 
the caffeine and the taste. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah, the kick for sure. So it's it's definitely not this connoisseurship where you're supposed to like the real way to drink tea. I don't know if this is real or just invented. Was to like you go through this ritual of like pouring hot water over the cups and you pour out a cup and you dump it and then you pour out the second cup and you drink that one. Right. That's like what like classic people are supposed to do in Asia, in East Asia. Wow. Okay. Right. But there's still like working class tea also around the world. It's always the same. Like working class tea is basically uh, tea that's cheap with milk and sugar. Right. And, and you know, and masala I think is like a real innovation that, that I appreciate because like you had all those spices, it tastes good. But uh, you know, it's like, it depends, it depends on what mood you're in, you know? True, true. Because uh, like straight up black tea with sugar is also kind of has its own nice flavor too. Is it true that when they, when the British decided to put sugar in tea that saved sugar plantations in the West Indies because sugar was a dying trade and that kind of contributed to slavery? So this is something... <laughs> was there a connection here? There is a connection. The there is a connection, but it, for me, I was kind of trying to work it out so that I didn't over-exaggerate the claim, as okay. it were. And I'm still not sure because actually I, I still read about... It, for Among historians, there's all this new literature, constant debate about the history of slavery that's still ongoing unrelated to tea, right? It's just about this, like, American historians are trying to figure out, uh, this relates to, like, you know, stuff, like, in terms of, like, how do we understand race in America, understand the history of this country and, and slavery. And there's all these debates that still happen about, like, was slavery dying in 1780? Was it not going to oh, die? Oh, okay, okay. But I do think it's true that the main function of sugar, and this has nothing to do with the United States. This is more about uh, sugar is mostly grown in the Caribbean. Right or the or South, what was called the West Indies. So the Caribbean, Guiana, which is in South America, maybe Louisiana and Florida, right? But not 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 like Virginia. Um, those, I would say this: the consumption of sugar and tea reinforced each other. That's definitely the case. Okay. And that um, there are historians that I quote that point out the fact that it seems that sugar production and consumption was kind of plateauing for a while. And then when tea became popular in England, sugar production kind of, you know, Kicked continues in. to rise. Now, the question for an, econ- for an economist, the question would be like, well, is there another, um, was there another product that they could have added sugar to? So like coffee, let's say, or I don't know, like so- some sort of like, you know, proto soft drink or something. I don't know. But, and that's, I don't know the answer to that. I don't really know the deep, I don't exactly know what like English people were what their diet was like and drinking right. back then so what one so that's an that's what an economist would say as, i would just say as a historian it's definitely true that tea um contributed to the rise of sugar consumption from you know slave-based colonies in the west indies okay um and you know we can we could and then you know historians or economists would say well we could do is counterfactual like what if there wasn't tea like, i don't know i don't know but <laughs> yeah so um okay so now the british are they found assam they're making tea gardens there or tea plantation i don't know what the difference is between the two and now what yeah so like i said before the the experiment with chinese stuff was kind of this waste of time they actually by 1850 so 10 years later they kind of ditch all that stuff uh and their obsession with the chinese stuff is interesting also because like all throughout this history the the reason tea gets popular in europe in the first place partly is related to the fact that europeans actually look up to china 
which might be kind of news for us today when China... look up to China like with respect or look up yeah. look at China with like this kind of exotic look exotic look but also with respect right like by they have so the answers I, to the universe kind of exactly thing. like okay. if you go to the 16 1700s western europe has kind of sees themselves as like a relatively new thing like you know i mean you know the history of the renaissance right. history of all that stuff they don't have the sense like in china that we've been around for thousands of years and we have all the answers so part of the initial craze for tea was this uh, famously glossed as this fashion trend in french called chinoiserie which is a craze for Chinese things, right? Tea is one of them, silkens, um, porcelain, um, and then you would have like this random European art that tries to depict China, but it's just white people because they don't know what Chinese people look like, right? But, uh, but, it kind of, but it's kind of like this early version of like Orientalist fascination with, with the rest of the world. Okay. Anyway, so I think in the 1830s and 40s, they're, they're fascinated with Chinese methods of growing tea because they think that they just kind of assume that Chinese methods of growing tea are going to be better than anything that could be done by Indian, the Indian workers or by the British themselves. And then by the 1850s, though, they figure out, um, yeah, no, like the Assamese tea plants and tea seeds are better. They're going to grow better and they're going okay. to be better. Um, and also, it just take, takes a long time, I think. I think it takes like 10 years for a tea plant to actually produce good tea. Okay. Uh, so that's the, that's the lag. And they've got the the labor, which is Indians. Yeah. So the 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 main the story really picks up in the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, where. Um, uh, Wait. So eighteen. So so, so eighteen fifty seven happens, which is right. the uh, the rebel the not the rebellion the mutiny where Zipoys right. uh, kills everybody. Yeah. And they're, when they see the, after everything is under control, the, the last Mughal dies. So the Mughal yeah. Empire is gone. Yeah. And now they kind of have this kind of different thinking now, and they see Indians differently now. So that's, yeah. So that's an argument I make. Um, and this is uh, based upon the work of a lot of other people. But like, I mean, to be clear, like Assam, again, like Assam this entire time is at the periphery, right? It's at the very far edge of British India. Yes. So whatever is happening in Delhi and the Sepoy Mutiny or uprising, whatever you want to call it, is not that directly related to whatever happens in Assam. Although yeah. there are, there, apparently there are people, including people working for the British tea companies, who were discovered to be also part of this conspiracy of an uprising against the British. Right. So that's that's kind of the um, direct connection between the Sepoy, you know, uprising and mutiny with yeah. Assam, right? But the argument I make is that um, kind of basing off the argument of some other historians, uh, Karuna Mantina is one of them, Andrew Sartori is another one, uh, thinking about the way that um, historians think that after the Sepoy Mutiny, there was a shift in thinking among the British uh, Empire. So up until the 1850s, there was kind of this interesting moment where the British as liberals in the classical sense of kind of thinking um, everyone around if you can just kind of open up free markets around the world everyone will naturally like improve their standing in life and so therefore indians are like the british right there's this kind of uh so british rule in the 1820s and 30s was always the base about the indians can be like the british as long once they get the opportunity to do it and as long as we um kind of create the right legal foundation or political or economic foundation indians will be like british people okay after the Sepoy mutiny there famously is this shift in thinking by the British in India that actually Indians are not like the British, right? And this is where you get the more kind of famous stories of British people kind of like being straight up racist, right? right. And, and, and thinking about, 
um, uh, uh, like British Indian society is organized around these like categories of caste or you know religion, and that is why they are like ira- they're irrational. Unlike they're we, backwards. In, yeah, they're backwards. Um, and British policy should be not about treating everyone the same, but about um, kind of if not recognizing, but even perhaps re- reinforcing the racial difference between Europeans and Indian people, right? And, and if anything, like uh, in the long run, it is the mission of the British people to uplift the Indian people, right? But we have to begin from the recognition that they are racially inferior to us. Right? And that dehumanizes them. And right, that makes exactly. it easier to exploit them. Right. And hence the tea gardens. Right. So my, the argument I make is that there's an indirect, there's a, this is, it's hard to make draw like direct connections, but this is the general shift of philosophy within the British administration. And I think that gets manifest in Assam in a very specific way, which is uh, in Assam, the British tea companies were having a really hard time getting Indian locals, meaning Assamese locals, to work for them and grow tea. Uh, and they were like, well, what's wrong with them? Don't they want to make money? Don't they like to, you know, like have a job? And, you know, yeah. and the conclusion they reach is like, they are not civilized or culture, culturated, acculturated to, you know, capitalism, to having like a nine to five work day, to working for a wage, et cetera. So, uh, whereas in like Western Europe or in the civilized world, we would just rely upon free labor, labor markets, just people to like naturally find a job, like gravitate to where jobs are available and, you know, like apply for a job and work there. And right. that's how people, uh, that's how you're in theory, right? In Europe, that's how you're supposed to like get people to work for you. But in civilizations or in parts of the world that are not that civilized, you might have to take these measures that would be considered illiberal, right? That are sort of like over the top, extra economic. Forced. So, forced, right? And that, uh, so this is what produces, starting in the 1860s, famously, this uh, history of a labor policy in Assam, which could be called labor indenture. That's right. what historians would call it. I think, in their own words, the British would say it's it's penal con- it's penal contract labor, and this gets us into these kind of like fine debates about what is free labor at this time in history, um, what is indenture, what is unfree labor. Uh, this is a moment in time. This is where it kind of gets interesting because a lot of these debates are happening around the world, not just in India, um, and especially with regards to the you know, abolition and emancipation of African slaves, right. enslaved people from Africa and in the Caribbean and the United States. And um, we don't really know from like 1850 when like, you have all these emancipation abolition movements around the world. Between like 1850 and 1900, I'd say, the world is not really sure what free labor is supposed to look like, right? All they know is slavery is unfree, but then you have all these debates about like, well, what is free labor, right? right. So like, if if I sign a contract to work for like your company, but part of that contract it says something like, if I break the rules of the contract, you can ask the police to like track me down and bring you back, right? But I signed the contract on my own free will. Is that free labor or not? That's an open question at the time, right? right. And so the argument that was being made in Assam, but also, you know, I'm sure you're aware of these histories of Indian and also Chinese workers being brought to the Caribbean, right? Because yeah. as African, as you have the abolition of African enslavement in the Caribbean, well, people still want sugar and these, tea, these sugar planters still want to grow sugar. So they try to get a lot of these freed um, slaves, ex-slaves to work on the plantations. But another, eventually they're just like, let's just find these other 
people uh, using these other agencies to come across the world and work on these sugar plantations. So that's where you wind up with a lot of Indian and Chinese diaspora yes. in the Caribbean, right? Yeah. So that's the, and I would say Assam, even though it's, you know, connected to India, it is like part of India, you could actually kind of think as part of this larger circuit of Indian migrants. Um, some Indian migrants from Eastern India, like Bengal, some could be shipped to Assam. You, they could also easily be shipped to like Fiji, right? They're coming from the same circuits, the same sort of overall circuits of migrant workers being recruited from villages and, you know, Bengal and, and, and Orissa um, and, or even like central, central India, like modern day Charkhan. Um, uh, yeah, it's all, it's all a circuit of like these British agents kind of going through the villages and like, recruiting people and shipping them, um, you know, perhaps across the Atlantic Ocean, but also maybe to Assam. Okay, and um, did they trick them? Was it like... Uh, yeah, this was the controversy. and Misleading and, them? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the longest, for the longest time, the history of this was something like, most famously, there was a book called uh, by Hugh something, Hugh Tinker, that was called like A New Form of Slavery. Right. And uh, it's really easy to like be seduced by the story because obviously you have, instead of replacing enslaved Africans, you have indentured Indians. So that's like a pretty easy story. And to some degree, it is, it is unfree labor by our standards. But like I said, there was this, at the time, there's ambiguity. And the British people who are working this out are like, well, if you sign the contract on your own free will, that's not slavery, right? So right. by our modern standards today, though, this doesn't, this doesn't get worked out until around 1910 or so. Um, free labor means not only can you sign a contract, but you can leave it anytime you want. Yeah. Right. You you can get you can get fined. The only type of punishment you can have is like a as a is a monetary punishment. Yeah. But you can't be put into jail. You can't have the police track you down. Anything like that, uh, which is called uh, shoot, what is that called? Um, uh, I'll think of it later. But that 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 is taught today in law schools as illegal. Okay. By by modern societies, but for like 1850, 1900 or so, there was like a lot of ambiguity. So these penal contracts are penal in the sense that like you can, go, you can go to jail if you break the contract. Right. Are used to recruit Indian workers to Assam or to overseas, and and I, and again, I kind of tie this all back to that subway mutiny movement uh, moment when when the justification by the British officials, a lot of it is like again, Indians are different than us. These Indian villagers are different than us. They don't understand what it's like to have. Uh, you know, a nine to five job. They don't understand what it's like to use money, right? right? They they probably like trade food. They 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 have they engage in uh, you know um, economies in kind when they, they trade food or grains or favors for each other. So they just have to go through this. They have to go through the habit of learning how to be good workers who uh, as work per for, contract per contract, right? So these con so these contracts are written up basically. The metaphor would be like they're children. And just like children have to have their hand held yeah. as they are kind of brought into the world and like they have to go to school for 12 years to learn how to like show up the class on time and do yeah. their homework and all that stuff. Um, these in this case, workers, class is like school class. They're all like very unfair. I mean, you give me some examples where like they just kept getting more and more in depth. Yeah. Right. And yeah. So a system where they change the clocks. Right. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, yeah. So, so once you get to the plantations themselves, so basically, the way this all works is the fact that, this, so there's a theory that um, for the British officials, that from the legal perspective, 
they have this like just you know really sophisticated justification about why they're allowed to write these penal contracts. Yeah. For the planters though, they're basically you know you can imagine they're just like bastards. They're just like they want to extract as much wealth as possible from the workers, and they don't really give a crap about like being humane towards them. The fact that these penal contracts though basically give them the right to put their workers in prison if they break the contract, that is a justification for them to kind of just treat the workers like there's no limit on how bad they can treat the workers, right? Yeah. So once you get to the plantation itself, the the story goes, it's like these villagers, they're not really sure what's happening. Once, once they get to the plantation, though, it's like they're, they finally discover their, their ultimate fate because Assam is really far away from where their villages are. And by then they realize they're like put into prison and they can be treated with impunity by the planters. So you have these stories where, um, like for, with the clocks, for instance, I mean, this isn't, this isn't, um, I wouldn't say this is like insidious, but what they did, they did do this where they kind of changed the clocks on the plantations just to make sure that they would wake up as early as possible. Oh, they would, they would change the clock so that, um, uh, how do I put this? They change it so that because the sun rises and falls at a different time than the rest of India. Um, so they change it so that it would actually allow them to maximize the amount of daylight for them to work during the day, which isn't that different than like daylight savings time, no, which is what no. we use right today. Uh, but that does give you a sense. I, I include that little detail to give you a sense of how um, the, the plantations really were run like factories. They were really like very rationalized. They had the strict schedule and they had these, um, like, like you mentioned, they had these, all these little tricks that on the surface look like very um, fair rules and regulations. Like you do this much work, you get paid this much. And then if you would do this for three years, you'll pay off your contract and you're free to go. Right. But in reality, they were constantly changing the amounts of work that was expected of them changing what was considered like the average amount of work such that it was impossible to meet if it's impossible to meet that work. But in the meantime, you're living on the plantation and you're eating the food of the plantation and you're sleeping in the plantation, you know, dormitories, then you are still incurring debts to the planters themselves. And so the, in, in theory, then these like three year contracts, five year contracts could be stretched out to basically be lifetime contracts, wow. right? Of being, being, being indebted to these planters. Now I should also say that, um, like I was saying before, there's a very liberal way of thinking of this is like, you know, this is a form of slavery. This is unfreedom. And this is unlike the opposite of what quote unquote free labor. But I, I you know, my, my, my advisor was always like kind of telling me that to be, to be aware of like where are these sources coming from, who is actually giving the documentation. I think there's no question that a lot of these plantations and planters were under, were terrible working conditions. But a lot of the a lot of this thought, this 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 literature we're reading are from Indian nationalists, or from people who obviously have this agenda of they want to abolish the system. So they kind of highlight only the worst conditions, which I'm sure you know are were not they were not made up. Uh, there were probably also like people who were like fine with what with what with what was going on. Mm. Like the planters treated them fine, um, and they were grateful for the opportunity to to make a little bit of money. Um, these are plantations where. Um, uh, you know, they live there, like they're colonies. So they, they're actually, there's markets that get set up on the weekend, right? That they can actually like buy things and shop for things and so on. And so there's a lot of, when you read those, when you read those sources, you have Indian nationalists who are very, who very much make it their, their agenda to like portray everything English as bad and every, and all Indians as basically these like noble angelic figures. You have these British um, planter interests 
who want to portray all Indians as lazy and it's their fault if we beat them, right? Right. And then you have these other British officials who are, I think, um, open to any interpretation, but eventually they get convinced, like, no, this system doesn't work. Um, and obviously the the bad always the good. And I, th- I do think that's probably, like, ultimately the... Um, the the right conclusion that this was a fucked up system basically right but the other thing i kind of wanted to point out is like all this stuff that's like you know the abolitionists in the americas in the 1850s the indian nationalists who are protesting against indenture conditions in assam in the early 20th century all this stuff is founded upon a defense of free labor as good like as as, as the capitalist system is basically good as long as you make people work under their own free will but the way you make people work under their own free will is you make the average person um dependent upon working for a living or else they won't get food and they won't get insurance and they won't you know etc etc so you have these interesting debates in the 1920s about indian indenture where these politicians are like well like we don't have to worry about finding workers in india um as long as workers are starving as long as people are starving in india yeah they're going to have, there's going to be people who want to have jobs. Right. So the, 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 these like anti-slavery, anti-indenture people, they're not, they're not like radical socialists who are like tear down capitalism. Instead, they're more like, no, capitalism works great as long as you make, as long as you starve people and make them work for a living. Wow. Right. So instead of enslaving people, instead of using prison to enforce these work contracts, right. Um, let's just like make sure people, cannot survive for more than a few weeks without, without working for, working for a salary, working for a wage. So I, I, the, the, I point this all out to say, like, by the end of this book, I'm like a little, uh, it's, so there's no doubt that like, free labor is better than indenture. Right? I'm not, I'm not questioning that. Right. But in the long run of things, what this is, is basically the victory of um, what the British set out to do in the first place, which is create a capitalist system in India, create create a capitalist tea industry. Um, and, the, and, and ultimately, um, what the Indian nationalists want in the 1920s, which is a profitable tea industry that will bring wealth to India and also give jobs to Indian people. Yeah. That's not that different than what the British claimed they were setting out to do in the 1830s, 1840s, which is to turn Assam, which they saw as this very wild, jungly territory with lots of lazy people. They wanted to turn it into a modern capitalist, you know, um, territory to be integrated into their larger empire. Um, so there's a little bit of an irony here, right? That, um, yeah, like indenture is bad. Penal contracts are bad, but um, ultimately the Indian nationalists are, even though they're like, you know, by the 1920s, they're like, fuck the British, British rule sucks. Like we have to get, get, them, get them out of India. The vision they have of Indian society is not that different than the, the vision that the British had. Um, when they set out to create the tea industry in the first place. So there's a little bit of, I don't know, ambivalence at the end, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's yeah. interesting to see. It's a lot of the process. Yeah. However, most of the money will go back to their own country. So that's kind of a pro right. in this, where which could be used to either build streets and schools or whatever they want, but as long as it stays in the home base. Yeah. Yeah. So the way, so ultimately, what I was thinking was my understanding of the like Indian nationalism, this you know, 1920s, 1930s movement. That um, I don't know, I don't know, like from your perspective, um, like with your parents, do they do they think of like 
as Pakistani, Pakistani immigrants, do they see themselves as part of that lineage of the sort of Indian nationalist movement? No. And do they? No. No, they see, they have, I don't know, I don't think they have any views. They're just. Okay. Well, anyway, so my whole point is I started to think about what exactly was going on. Because like the, mo the most kind of common sense, like for like Western liberals who watch Gandhi, right? The, the starring Ben, what's his name? Kingsley. Uh, yeah, right. It's just like, uh, like white people are bad and Indian people are great, even though Ben Kingsley is white, you know? Right, right. Um, uh, uh, but like what was really at stake was I think from an economic standpoint, the disagreement wasn't so much a disagreement about um, Indian society should be this modern capitalist country. In fact, a lot of Indian nationalists were educated in Oxford or educated in these yes. English institutions. So was Gandhi, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was and a lawyer. Kind yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and this is the thing that a lot of Indian historians have talked about how it wasn't as if Indian nationalists were proposing a completely radically different vision of society than British, than like what their British education was telling them was a good society, right? It's a, it's a society founded upon markets, upon, um, uh, liberal uh, upon um, a, a legal system that protects individual rights and all that stuff. That's all stuff that, at least on the surface, right, they get from, quote unquote, the West, right? So the disagreement was mostly about how the economic and the political system was being enforced in a racially unfair way. Racially. Right. Like, right, exactly. Like, like, like they didn't have the same rights. Like, like the British were hypocrites, right? Right. The Brit British, quote unquote, Western philosophy says that everyone has equality and you know, freedom, equal rights. equal rights, freedom to go, freedom to trade, freedom to, etc. And so for like in the tea industry in particular, the complaint wasn't that this tea industry, like cap, they weren't saying like capitalism is bad. They were like, this tea industry is great. It gives jobs to Indian workers and it could produce a lot of profits that could go to Indian people. Their complaint was that because the British have a monopoly over the capital, over the ownership of these plantations and they, and they don't allow Indian people to actually really participate in this industry, then the wealth goes overseas. And this right. is famously called a drain of wealth from Brit from British from, from India to the British. So again, from one perspective it is anti-British, pro-Indian. But from a more meta sense, it's like it's not actually a disagreement with a lot of the um you know pro market ideals. Yes. Right. So basically and, everything keeps everything's the same. They just want that results the the fun the uh, the output to go in the other direction right and so this is and but there's the, a lot of the game the rules stays the same so this is the basic um, famously this is the argument that a lot of Indian historians have said that Indian nationalism or the Indian independence was um, kind of just inheriting the structure of 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 of, of the British Empire except now we have um, Indian people running the show. Whoa. Right, but the show is kind of the same. Wow! So we will exploit our own people. You don't get to exploit <laughs> our own people, basically. But the exploitation is still there. But then you know there were attempts in the fifties and sixties and seventies to create some sort of alternative. They didn't call it communism. They didn't call it socialism. Um, I, I I don't know. I don't. Sorry, I don't really know what's going on in Pakistan necessarily. But in India, famously, you have Nehru, right? Who yeah. is like he was kind of interested in like socialist like ideas um, and having the government do a lot of these things yeah. to make sure that, you know, wealth was distributed and basic services were provided. And they put a lot of restrictions on foreign trade and foreign investment to kind of make sure that again, as a reaction to this system where wealth was drained from India to, to overseas, that the wealth would stay in India and that the jobs would stay in India and that the, um, 
So in the 50s and 60s, that what, what the tea industry, you know, just as, as an example, you do have this gradual, it's not overnight, but you do have this gradual process where the people who own the tea plantations, um, the ownership gradually shifts from, um, you know, European to Indian owners. Yeah. Meantime, the British are like, all these restrictions in India are too, um, they're too difficult for us to do business. So they actually wind up going to Kenya. And a lot of the tea that winds up in like Lipton and looks sort of like the crappy black tea, uh, you know, that's around the world is grown in Kenya. And I don't know exactly if there's a real local tea drinking culture, but I'm pretty sure like over 90% of the tea grown in Kenya today is for exports. It's, it's still like a straight up, it's a colony. What about Ceylon? Didn't they go to, didn't so, they yeah. expand there? So Cause... Ceylon was, Ceylon was the other story and that doesn't start till after Assam, but it does eventually become, just as potent a colony in terms of producing tea uh, for the world market. So by the late 19th century, what my book is really about, right, is about what happens in China and India at the same time. Yes. And China more or less is fine as the number one tea producer, tea exporter in the world until the 1880s. And it's in the 1880s that Assam kind of picks up. And I make an argument in the book that I think others have um, argue, historians in India have argued this before. I try to make it much more explicit that, you know, why did India overtake China? There's a lot of economic theories, but I honestly think it's colonialism that makes the difference. It's the fact that they have this penal contract system that allows the British tea plantations in India to uh, basically pay their workers less and extract a lot more labor out of their workers than, than, than would be possible wow. with the free market. Yeah. So that's a big economic edge. And I think something similar is going on in, um, you know, colonial Ceylon or you know, modern day Sri Lanka. Um, and even though Ceylon starts off later than Assam, and I think they basically borrow the experience of Assam because um, they were they were doing coffee before that. Um, by the turn of the 20th century, by 1900 or so, they're kind of neck and neck as the two big tea producers in South Asia that are producing almost exclusively for the Western European market. It's all for export. Um, and then that the you know when do when do when do South Asians actually start drinking tea? That's not until a lot later, until the 1950s and 60s. That kind of I mentioned before the history of like chai masala becoming or masala chai becoming like a street food. That's kind of the moment when the middle class and the working class of India um, actually start drinking the tea itself. For the for the first century or so, it was always this exotic British thing that was grown for the British and to be exported back to back to Britain. Right. Um, so, that's crazy. 1950s and 60s is when tea started to become a thing. I felt like I always imagined tea to be like from the beginning of time. Yeah. In, in India. Yeah, and I think yeah, I don't think people know too much about that. The, the one of the big um, uh, innovations um, a scholar named Philip Lukendorf has written about this is, dude, uh, have you heard of CTCT? So CTC is, I've, I talked to like different people who are South Asian diaspora. Some have heard of it. I think in, in India, it's actually just like a very common thing to see like in the grocery store, which is, uh, I want to, I, cut trim curl might be the word for it, which is to say that it's a way to make tea where you put the leaves through a machine that literally just like shreds up the tea. Okay. So that's why if you look at a tea bag, the inside of a tea bag is not whole leaves. It's like little tiny particles yeah. of tea, right? Um, and that's a way to from a tea snob perspective, that makes the tea really crappy, right? What it, what it does is it cuts up the leaf so that more surface area is exposed to the air 
Okay. So this leads to more oxidization, and therefore, and the oxidization is what makes tea leaves go from green to brown. But in that oxidization process, it produces therefore more bitterness, but also more caffeine. Oh. So CTC is just like uh, a super amped up, extra bitter, but extra caffeinated version of of black tea. Um, and it's, in my opinion, it's like undrinkable as black tea. But you know, I know a lot of you know South Asians who, who will drink it just like straight up, and they like it. Cause, and it's like basically drinking like black coffee. So it's for the caffeine. It's for the. Caffeine. It's for the caffeine, and they just get used to it. I personally, when I drink it, I feel like I can feel it on my teeth almost. It's like maybe okay, wow, maybe I am drinking. Uh, I'm gonna go upstairs later on and check. On I don't know if you're drinking like Lipton, you are drinking CTC tea. I am drinking Lipton. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wow. Unless you're drinking like whole leaf tea, that's no. CTC. Okay. Yeah. So, and that's why it's like lifting. That's why they can make tea for like a dollar. You know, it's like, because this process takes out all the whole like connoisseurship and like, you know, like subtle notes of, you know, like strawberry, like all that stuff gets cut out. It's just like the most like blunt, uh, you know, to the extreme version of, of tea flavor possible, but also like the effect of tea of having caffeine and having bitterness. And I think the goal is to make it with milk and sugar. So yeah, that you can is. taste it through the milk and sugar. But, you know, I know some South Asians who drink it as straight up black. And uh, I, I can, it's basically like making coffee. What, what tea, tea do you drink? Uh, what tea would you recommend? Actually, no, this is kind of embarrassing. I actually do kind of think I drink CTC now that I oh. think about it. I've been getting really into Earl Grey. Earl Grey. Which is um, uh, black tea with a little bit of fruit. Bergamot is an orange. And I've been drinking with milk and sugar as this like comfort drink. <laughs> what about for like, let's say, if, what about for health benefits? If you would recommend a tea, would you recommend anything? Do you know any of? I like, uh, this is kind of cheating. This isn't tea proper. I like this. But, so there's like a distinction between like tea, which is the tea leaf. And then there's, I think in French, they have something, this word called like tea sont, which is herbal tea, right? Like tea okay. that's not tea. I like this Japanese stuff, Japanese and Korean stuff like soba or buckwheat tea or barley tea, which is. You'll have it like at a Korean restaurant where it basically tastes like. Oh, I've had that. It tastes like sesame oil, but there's, yeah, no, there's no oil in it. It's very different. Yeah, it's, I kind of think it's nice, and it's there's no caffeine in it. I feel like it's a real palate cleanser. And the portions just, are bigger too. It's like in a big cup. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you can just make as much as you just pour hot water over it, and it yeah. releases. Um, that's kind of nice. It's very nutty, and that's become popular in Japan as a, um, as a, as a just sort of a. Again, there's no sugar, there's no caffeine. It's just like drunk as like flavored water almost. That's nice. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I like green tea. I like Japanese powder tea, you know, matcha. Yeah, I got to try that, yeah. Yeah, so, so matcha, matcha is like popular now as like the Starbucks sugar drink, like green tea, <laughs> green tea lattes and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But the original stuff is not bad. And if you go to like a nice sushi restaurant, um, that's still, and you ask for like a cup of this like kind of expensive, like $4 tea, it's like this powdered stuff and that's... It's not bad. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask for that next time. I <laughs> yeah. So, all this exploitation of people and and paying them less and forcing them to work more, it brings them to number one. Then, right? So, India tea becomes the number one tea, the world leader in tea, and China just drops down. Yeah. So this is for basically from eighteen. I want to say eighteen eighty six is when Indian tea surpasses China. And I don't think it gives it up until like 20 something, like 2010 or 2014 2010, or wow. Yeah, yeah. That's and so, yeah, so obviously a lot of things are happening in the meantime. 
India is going through independence. China has their own revolutions, and so, uh, and even when even when there's like no real good government in China, which is like through the twenties and thirties, there are some parts of China where they can kind of keep it together. Um, and and I write about that how this is kind of the beginning moment where a lot of ideas about modernization and modernizing agriculture and modernizing the economy in China. Are really happening, and I use I use the the I kind of keep the story focused on tea, right, to kind of make these larger observations about modern Chinese history. What is moderniz um, What is modernization of tea? So, like which machines, is, industry, like the stuff like that. Exactly right. So, like if you if you ask someone like what does industrialization mean, they would probably think like steam engines to yeah. power. Uh, you know, it used to be classically it was like textile factories, but now like in the 20th century it was like car factory, you know, like, like a gigantic metal box with like hundreds of people, right? Um, they don't do that in China to the same extent, but they, interestingly enough, people in China, they go to Japan and then they, and then they also started reading about Assam and reading about India. And they're, they're, they're thinking like, how did we lose out to India? And then they also wind up losing out to Japan. And they, they figure out, well, what they have is some sort of scientific-based version of agriculture, scientific-based version of um, manufacturing their goods. So India and China don't talk to each other throughout this whole triangle thing. And they don't know what the other is doing. There's, they just hear stories. I, I talk about there's one visit in the, the 1906, 1905, I want to say, where some Chinese, Chinese officials go to, uh, I think, Singapore, and then Ceylon, and then to, not Assam, to Darjeeling. Uh -huh. And they do take a tour of these tea plantations. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny because you're reading, like, up until this point, a lot of these Chinese officials have no idea what India is. Uh -huh. They just kind of think of it as, like, the place where Buddhism came from. They don't really know what's going on, like, British colonialism. Right. Um, and so you have these interesting descriptions. Very, I think there's, these are some of the earliest descriptions in Chinese of India. And they talk about how there's elephants everywhere or you know, the tea plantations. They talk about how Calcutta is like this really busy city. Um, uh, yeah, and so they bring a lot of those ideas back to China where they're like, well, the British have begun to introduce mechanization into the tea plantations in India. Now I make an argument that the mechanization stuff is a little overrated, that tea even today is mostly a, a, a manual or a manual hand. Thing, yeah. Right, like it's about skill, it's about plucking by hand still like i think with coffee you can use like a tractor to like i don't know they have a way of like getting coffee beans from from machines these days i don't think you can do that with tea even today you hand pick them. um yeah so but the mythology was like the british kept kind of hyping themselves up and saying because we're the british and so we're so good at science and industry we will eventually make tea this really um efficiently produced product and they also made a lot of claims about how it was going to be more hygienic that tea from British India is going to be done by machine, whereas tea from China is going to, the, the phrase they use that is that tea from China comes from sweaty yellow men. Yeah. So this is a marketing technique to tell their very Victorian customers, like you don't want this dirty tea from China, right? You want clean tea from the British colony. Um, so there's a lot of hype about how the Indian methods are more scientific and industrial. And the Chinese um, officials who are reading about this they even go to India for a little bit. They bring those ideas back to China. And there's a lot of talk in the 20s and the 30s about how to modernize the tea industry. Now, and this is for me, 
this is for me to talk about just like to have a conversation with the rest of other China historians who are just trying to figure out the long the long history of 20th century China. Um, and, uh, you know, I make the argument that on the surface, not a lot is changing in China because they're in like chaos in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Basically, not until the communist revolution do things kind of calm down for a bit. But um, yeah, I would say by the 20s and 30s, a lot of people in China, they figured out like, okay, this is capitalism. This is how it works. These are the these are the principles of political economy um, as they were kind of worked out by British and European thinkers, as they were exported to British India, you know, as we just talked about. And this is also how we in China should um, modernize our own society. Um, and in a way then, even though I don't get to the present, I think I'm making a comment on now. This, this, this is kind of the foundation of how both modern India and modern China, but also like a lot of these non-European societies around the world underwent this transformation in the 20th century where they came to um, absorb and internalize a lot of the ideas of cap about, about, about capitalism um, in ways that, yeah, in, in ways, in ways that are perhaps not that obvious on the surface. It, it sounds like, it sounds like um, it's like China sees India making tea and, and being really profitable and rising up the, the chain, the ladder. And they figure out that like, oh, the way the reason that why they're number one is because they um they pay their workers less and they really you know, they See? go all they go all out. So we need to do that too. Yeah. So then they do it and then everyone else starts doing it more and then it's just this competition is not really who can make the best tea or who can but it's really like who can make their workers work more for less. Is that it? Uh, and that kind, is capitalism, in a sense. <laughs> that, that's kind of that's kind of my interpretation. I would say that I'm making the intervention, making the argument that they they basically got ahead by paying the workers less and using this unfree labor system. I think for the people at the time, as, as the Chinese observers, they don't see that. They actually, it's interesting. They actually they have this like brief mention of what's going on in India, but they don't really fully absorb all the like the scandalous, you know. Yeah stories of pe being beaten and all that stuff um for them they really are just thinking it's about these principles of um you know vertical integration and mechanization all that stuff you would find in, like, in an econ textbook right right um but i do but the broader point i think is that you that you stated is correct and i think an argument i'm trying to make is that this is how it works that you know the way how do we get a, a, a global capitalist market uh one could say that it's something like, oh, all, all humans are naturally deep down capitalists and we just had to unleash this. That's like one theory right? Um, that, you know, isn't that persuasive to most historians, but that's, that's kind of like the general, like liberals view of the world, right? That deep down everyone's like us. Another story would be something like imperialism, right? That the Europeans brought it uh, with and like forced it upon local societies. I think that gives too much credit to the Europeans and that doesn't, you know, pay attention enough to how like there actually are like Indian people and Chinese people and all sorts of non-European people who figured it out. And like, no matter how, no matter how many British people there are in, in like British India, for instance, there's way more Indian people. Yeah. Right. So for capitalism to actually become the way that society gets organized, a lot of Indian people have to be into capitalism also. Right. True. Uh, so what I'm trying to work out is this is like the more conceptual theoretical part of my argument, right? That how do we tell a history of capitalism in the world in the parts of the world 
that are not part of the kind of classic story of the North Atlantic. So typically Britain and more recently the United States, that's kind of where everyone kind of looks when they think about capitalism. Yeah. And they typically think of the rest of the world as like, whenever they talk about the rest of the world, they think of it as the story of like East and West. Like how did these Western ideas come into this Asian land, you know? And I would say like something like comp think about the way that competition works and how like there were actually like Chinese thinkers and Indian thinkers looking out into the world, observing these economic trends and learning from those economic trends. Like that is a way to think about, you know, the creation of a global market that I would say does not shortchange the agency or shortchange the participation of actors in Asia itself, right? And I'm not trying to like celebrate them and say like these are like our heroes or whatever, like, cause like I said, I obviously have a lot of misgivings about capitalism, right? Yeah. But I, I do think even today, just like if you read like the New York Times talking about the rest of the world, they still have this very condescending attitude that yeah. what's going on in modern Asia is not as good as like the original, which is in Western Europe and, and the United States, right? But like, I don't know if you've been back to like, travel through a lot, a lot of Asia, um, like Pakistan or South Asia or Southeast Asia. You go to a lot of these Asian cities, it, it, like, like literally like there's city states, like gigantic civilizations organized around like Tokyo or Shanghai or, or, or Delhi or Bombay, right? And like, they're just as busy and active and hustling and, you know, as anything you would probably more so than anything you would see in Western Europe or the United States today. So I think part of my motivation is trying to like give credit to that. Like Asians are just as Asia has become, and probably a lot of the rest of the world. I just, I just know Asia better obviously than, than the rest of the world. There are parts of the world that are more economically and socially dynamic than Western Europe. Um, and I think historians should kind of, uh, or scholars, people in the academy should kind of um, recognize that. Right. So, so a competition is for me to say as a way for me to think about how, how do these processes spread without making it this real simple story of like Europeans, you know, you know, Westerners Westernize the rest of the world. Right. Cause you know, you go to like Tokyo, you don't think this is a Western city. This is like a Japanese city. Right? Yeah. Japanese yeah. people are doing this shit. Yeah. Um, and, and you can't just be like, you guys are just like <laughs> acting like white people. Right. Like they're not, you know? No, no. Right. Right. So. Wow. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that, makes, that was yeah. That's a lot too. That's really cool. Um, yeah. I think our time's almost up. Yeah. Do you want to add anything? Any cool thoughts and concepts? Uh, stories, ideas. Stories, ideas. I mean, I think you know. I mean, just kind of like what I was saying before. I was as a lot of this stuff was. This book is about the nineteenth, early twentieth century, but I think in the back of my head was like when you read just like going to Asia, going to South Asia, going to East Asia is like, this place is really dynamic. And, and there's also uh, a lot of connections, especially today. I mean, they might not be the best. Um, they might not be like the most heartwarming and because there's a lot of stories, for instance, about the Chinese state moving into, you know, investing into and moving into like the Middle East and moving into India. But like there are a lot of connections within Asia also that are really interesting and for the most part have been overlooked um because because history or because the academy is for, so eurocentric yes right so if they're going to study south asia or china they would do it in terms of like east west like i was just saying right right but it's also it'd be interesting to like think about this connections like between china and india or between china and like, india and southeast asia right or between india and the middle east or china and the middle east right and i think 
you know, that's actually like where most of the world where, where most of the world lives, or where who who most of the world is. And uh, you know, I, I understand why most people focus on 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 United States and Western Europe so much. I, I probably spend most of my time thinking about it also, just because I live in this country. Yeah. But uh, I think that was kind of the probably subconscious motivation to to picking this topic, trying to um, trying to foreground that part of interactions and dynamics in that part of the world. Um, um, but also like keeping in focus, but all, but also not trying to be romantic about it and, and exoticizing it. You know, it's not trying to say like, oh, because of the connections by Buddha with Buddhism <laughs> and Confucianism, like this is what motivates. Because a lot of people do that also, right? They yeah. kind of talk about um, their spiritual connections. Like, no, it'll, these were these, these are modern. It'll sell more books if you do that. Yeah, I know, like dragon and the elephant, right? Yeah, that, that kind of stuff. But um, I think I think. I don't know. Just from a personal note, like my family is very much like a modern. They're part of the modern world, yeah. And 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 I think I get I get really sick of um, books about Asia that try to orientalize and talk about how everything can be explained by their traditions. So I think I think that was probably the subconscious motivation in choosing this topic and, cho- and writing a book like this. As a, as a diaspora yourself, like do you feel like when you read about Pakistan or, or South Asia, like do you feel like you know all these all these all these commentators in the west just want to reduce it to like religion or reduce it to like you know in india talking about caste or talking about you know their how they're stuck in the past i feel like at this point i i automatically i feel like it's in my brain that i automatically reduce everything to tradition and religion because i grew up in in canada and western civilization and it's my way of thinking and i'm trying to unlearn everything and see things kind of yeah. from a different point of view and the most books that I read, at least the popular ones, they're always kind of written by a white guy who kind of, you know, romanticizes <laughs> it. And for sure, you know, but then you there are these books here, you know, like yours, which yeah. like you get to see from a different angle. And it's like, yeah, you know, you're not romanticizing anybody or showing anybody is a good guy or a bad guy. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah. So that was really refreshing. And it really makes you just. I don't know, go back to everything you've learned and like start looking at <laughs> different angles, you know. And yeah. oh, it's just weird to know that there's a story that you've been hearing your whole life, and then someone comes in and tells you a different, the same story <laughs> but a different angle. Yeah, yeah. And you feel kind of like robbed, and you kind of feel like you've been tricked this whole time. Yeah, no, that's as <laughs> flattering you said that because that's honestly, I definitely have had that feeling too. Yeah. And if I could give that to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, you feel lonely because the rest of the <laughs> world doesn't know this, and. Yeah. It's a lot easier to just kind of go along with the popular version. Yeah, and nobody wants to know, and nobody wants to cares as much. Yeah. They just want to, you know, watch their movies and read their stories and be entertained. Yeah. We've been doing a po- I've been doing a podcast. I don't know if we talked about this. Yeah, I saw on your Twitter that you ended it, though. No, we're still doing it. Oh, it's you're still a, doing it? It's, it's a pop history, kind of pop culture podcast. You want to plug it in? Uh, yeah, so I've been doing a podcast with um, my friends who are journalists, Jay Caspian King and Tammy Kim. Um Jay just kind of invited Tammy and me to, to jump on board. And it, we talk about Asia, Asian American issues. We talk about history. We talk about politics. Tammy's very good thinking about uh, labor journalism and also Korea. She's Korean diaspora. What is labor ju- journalism? So like history, like what's going on with unions right now, what's going on with like workers during COVID, for instance. Um, Jay's written about a lot of stuff about sports. Um, he's, written, he's written a book about Asian American politics most recently and we talk about just like sometimes silly stuff, just like why do Asians care so much about food? Okay. Um, or, but we also, and we talk, or we talk about like, is Kamala, should Kamala Harris run as an Indian or a black or as an American candidate? That's, 
funny. Uh, then we try to do some serious stuff too, like you know, COVID or like human rights questions in China or you know, labor issues in in Korea. But um, it's、what's, it's been fun. And what's I the think, podcast called? And where、oh, can we go find yeah, it? Yeah, it's called "Time to Say Goodbye." Jay chose the title. You can find it at goodbye.substack.com.、Uh, the Twitter is a, at ttsgpod,、uh, and the email is time to say goodbye pod. But you can just find from from those two handles, you can find all the information. And、uh, you what's know, your Twitter you, account? Mine is at a n d y b l i u, so Andy B Blue, Andy Blue. <laughs>、um, uh, but it's not a. I don't. I try not to be a professional on it. I've had this、um, for ten years. There's a lot of basketball commentary. <laughs>、yeah. You know, if you like basketball, you should follow him. Yeah, I started as a as a shit talking NBA account. Now that I have a job as a professor, I feel like I have to promote my book.